If you have been with us the last number of weeks, you might remember we have been exploring together a sermon series around the life of David, who is a major character in all of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. And uh, we've been looking at him for a number of weeks, and this morning we are going to take a final look at David, and that's going to be a little bit different than the weeks prior to how we viewed him, and then it's going to be the end of us for our time here this morning, and then next week we start something new with the season of Advent and jumping into the hope that is found in Advent. So as we jump in this morning, you might remember again a couple weeks ago we looked at David, and so far all of our examples of David have really been good ones, the ways that he has uh, been a positive example for us. So a number of weeks ago, looked at David, realized how he was an overcomer. He overcame the obstacles and challenges with Goliath in his life. And then you might remember Pastor Daniel led us through a week where we talked about the obedience of David, especially in some more difficult situations and how he was obedient in those times. And then last week, we looked at how David was a worshiper and particularly in relation to the ark. And we'll make sure that person gets in, by the way, all right? So don't worry, we'll get them in here. Um, and then uh, also last week with the worship and the power of the ark and what it means to worship fully in the presence of God. All of those things lifted David up in a pretty positive light. But this morning, we're going to take a look at David and realize, although he did a lot of great things, he was by no means perfect. It is very easy when we're thinking about Bible characters to think they are in there because they are somehow morally superior to us, and we need to follow their very good moral example in order to please God and get into heaven. The reality is that is not true. The Bible is not filled with perfect totally moral people, and that that's why they're in Scripture. The reality is the Bible is filled with flawed, broken people who demonstrate for us the fullness and the goodness of God's perfect mercy and grace. And that's really what David's going to be showing us together here this morning. It's interesting when you think about the life of David, I appreciate the work of Eugene Peterson. He is a late author and pastor, and he passed away not too awful long ago. One of the things that he says about David is this. He says, the name of David will forever be linked to two earthly names. First of all, the name Goliath, which we're already familiar with. And in that instance, good things with David. David overcame the challenge of Goliath. But Eugene Peterson says David will also forever be linked with the name Bathsheba, who we're going to look at here together this morning. And in the case of David and Bathsheba, a number of not good things occurred. And so as we look this morning, we're going to realize very clearly that David is not a perfect person. It's not because of his perfection that he's in Scripture. In fact, David is anything but perfect. So this morning, I'm going to invite you to join with me. We're going to look in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to join me there. And you're going to discover this very quickly. One of my favorite things about Scripture, and we've shared this, is that the Bible keeps it real. And oh my goodness, if ever there was a week where the Bible was keeping it real, I would argue it is this morning. In fact, I would go so far as to say, you know how movies have ratings on, PG, PG-13, uh, rated R kind of thing? I really think we're in the PG-13 rated R kind of category this morning. Like that's the kind of messiness that we're going to discover with David and his life here this morning. So again, if you have your Bibles or your smartphones with you, I invite you to look with me. Here's how the story begins. And we're literally just going to go through this story together. This is one of those times you're going to understand it as we walk through it together. So what I want to invite you to do is let the story literally play out in your head as it's being described here. So verses 1 to 4. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, 
David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed, walked around on the roof of the palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home. This is not a good story. This is not one of David's most bright, shining moments. Bathsheba was the wife of a married man. And again, the story begins innocently enough. Uh, We're told that the folks go off to war, and you will know that in this time, one of the primary duties of a king was to lead his people into war. So we're not told this morning why David didn't go into war, but we're just told for whatever reason, he hung back. And as he hung back, you can just imagine how David might have been feeling in this time and in this instance. Remember, he's the king. So the reason that he hung back was not because he would have had extra duties to do. It wasn't like he woke up one day and was like, I've got extra laundry to fold today, so everybody, you all go on to war, I'm going to hang back. He wasn't like, I've got to clean some extra bathrooms today, so I'm going to hang back. He had people for those things, so he didn't have to worry about that. So he gets up on a particular day, and you can almost get a sense for David that there might have been a sense of restlessness for him, a sense of unease a sense of searching because he's the king and he's you know he's still in the prime of his life here and he's got things to do but he suddenly has a bit of a vacuum he's not leading his people into war Uh, we're not told that he's doing any strategic planning or anything particularly important so he wakes up on a given day and suddenly there's not a whole lot to do and that can be a dangerous place for us when there's not a whole lot to do and we're unfocused and we're not productive and you almost get the sense that david is sort of searching a little bit And as he's doing that, he's walking around on the top of his palace, and he looks out, and he sees Bathsheba. Now, we know that he didn't just see this beautiful woman and then turn away, because we're told, as he looked upon her, he told one of his servants, go and get her and bring her to me. So we know he continued to keep his focus on this beautiful woman. So as that's happening, imagine David getting up, and he looks out, and he sees a beautiful woman. Then he's captivated by the beautiful woman. And then because he's captivated by the beautiful woman, he's overcome with passion that he wants to be with this woman, and he's the king. So he can do whatever he wants. So he tells one of his servants, go get her and bring her here to me so that his passion with her can occur. Now, we don't know all the reasons that this is happening, but surely one of the reasons that because David wasn't focused, because David would have had this restless sense about him, some dangerous things happened. And that's one of the first things I want us to realize this morning is that restless time can very oftentimes be dangerous time. And all of us have those times in our life when we too are restless, we're not exactly focused, we might be looking for things to do, and the reality is, if we're not careful in our times of restlessness, we will fill our time in unhealthy ways. For David, that began just by strolling, walking around, not having a real plan, and suddenly when he saw Bathsheba, things began to take shape. What is it that you and I tend to do in our restless times? 
For many of us, it might be the end of a day and we're just kind of restless and trying to wind down and so we just scroll through Facebook for a long time. Now, there's nothing wrong with scrolling through Facebook, but there's also how much redeemable value at times and what do we depend on and why are we even taking so much time to scroll through? For others of us in our aimlessness, perhaps we do things like online shop, uh, even when we don't need what we're buying, even when we don't have the money to buy what we're buying, but we're restless and we're searching for something to fill us. For others of us, it may be turning to something that helps us just become numb and not have to deal with the realities of life. Maybe for some of us, we want to raid the food pantry. We're not even really hungry, but I, I just want to, you know, I'm, I'm, there's something nagging at me and I want to fill myself. For others of us, maybe it literally is turning to things like drugs or alcohol or pornography or anything that's going to let us begin to tune out. When we are restless, we turn to those things. So the next time that you are facing a sense of restlessness, or I am, I would want to ask us to look out and to think, how can I be more proactive if I know I'm going to enter into a restless time? And maybe what we can do is to say, you know, I know that tomorrow night I'm going to have some, uh, uh, some unstructured time. Let somebody you trust know that, that they can check in with you at that time and you can check in with them. Or maybe you just name it out loud and say, I recognize this is an unstructured time and I'm going to be very careful about how I use it. And so we're proactive. Maybe another option is to think, when I get to that time, I'm going to make sure I do something healthy. Maybe I'll go and take a walk, or maybe I'll do some form of recreation that's actually healthy. I'm going to make sure I clear my mind so that I don't enter into a dark and dangerous place. Because as we see for David, if you are restless and you're just wandering, it's so easy to be drawn into places we never intended to go. So David this morning sees Bathsheba, brings her to him, they sleep together, and then this is ugly, this is not good, this is another man's wife, but hey, at least the episode is over according to verse 4. However, the plot thickens. If you look in verse 5 with me this morning, it says this, the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-oh, what is David going to do now? Now he has a situation on his hands. Uh, If he's not careful, people are going to find out what he did, and that would not be good for a whole variety of reasons. So David begins to form a plan in his mind, and the plan that he comes up with is, if I can get Uriah home, and if I can get Uriah to spend some time with his wife, and they sleep together, then when the baby comes, people will think it's his baby and not mine. And David thinks this is a pretty good idea, so he starts to follow through on it, and this is what we hear in verse 6. So David sent this word to Joab. Remember, Joab is the army commander. He says, Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. Joab was sent to David, and then when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Now, there's a part of me that wants to say that, that little rascal David. I mean, you hear that? Like he brings Uriah there and he just immediately starts to soften him up, to butter him up. Uriah, how you doing? How your buddies doing? How's the war going? I'm so interested in you. It's so good to see you. And I'm sure David means all that. But David also has a plan in the back of his mind. And after this small talk and after they have conversation, David says, good to see you, Uriah. Why don't you go home tonight before you go back to battle? Spend some time with your wife. And that sounds great. But the plot thickens a little more because look what it says in verse 9. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all of his master's servants and he did not go down to his house. (sighs) 
David's probably like, Uriah, you're not helping me out here. Uriah, why didn't you go home? I'm giving you a free night before you have to go back. And you can just hear Uriah, sir, king, thank you, but I can't do that. When my friends, my peers, my comrades are out there, they're fighting for you and for me. There's no way I can enjoy myself at home when they're all out there fighting. So I want to honor that. Now here as we're going through this, hear how good Uriah is and increasingly how not good David is. Uriah is seeking to live into his responsibilities and be loyal and do the right thing, and increasingly, David is not. But you gotta give David some credit here. I mean, he is persistent, if nothing else. So David continues in his plan, and David's like, you know, maybe if we, maybe if we give him a little bit to drink, and then a little more to drink, and then a little more, and he becomes inebriated, maybe his judgment won't be so good, and maybe in that state, he'll go and sleep with his wife. Then we hear this in verse 13. At David's invitation, Uriah did eat and he did drink, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep again on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. Oh man. Now David's starting to get a little desperate. No matter what he's doing, he can't get Uriah home to be with his wife and to sleep with his wife Bathsheba. Things are getting desperate. And you know how it is. Desperate times call for desperate measures. So David hatches yet another plan. And here this time is what David decides to do. He will send Uriah back to the fighting, except this time he writes a note that he gives to Uriah and says, Uriah, take this to Joab, the army commander, and give it to him to carry out my instructions. So Uriah does that very thing. And this is what happens. Verse 14, 15. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and he sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is the fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will uh, be struck down and there he will die. So here's Uriah and just picture it. He's doing the loyal thing, the right thing, the good thing. He goes and he gives this letter to Joab He's giving Joab his own death sentence and he doesn't even know it. Because here's what we hear in verses 16 and 17. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. David's plan finally worked. Uriah is out of the picture. And so then finally what David does, verses 26 and 27, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife, bore him a son, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. This is David that we're talking about. This is David, who now at this point has coveted another man's wife, committed murder, slept with her, had him killed, and lied through the whole process. This is David. It's not Goliath who was evil in the story. It's not someone like Hitler that we often think of. It's not Satan himself. This is David. 
David, who in scripture in verse 40, chapter, uh, chapter 40, verse 8 of Psalm 40, chapter 8, says this, I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is written in my heart. The very man who says, I long to love you, God, and I want all of who I am to please you. It's this guy with this thinking and this longing doing these horrible, awful things. And these aren't little sins. I mean, David, the Ten Commandments, he's knocked almost half of them off right here. Coveting, murdering, adultery, lying. That's at least four of the ten. And to top it all off, as if all of that wasn't enough, I don't know if you might remember who Uriah is. A couple weeks ago when Pastor Daniel shared with us about the obedience of David, he referenced for us a posse around David, a a group that went with him to protect David because they believed in him and they believed he was who God was calling to be the next king and they laid their life down for him. They were literally called David's mighty men. Guess what? According to 1 Chronicles, Uriah is one of those men. David is scum here. I mean, David is, he is literally, he's just taken out a friend of his who had laid down his life for him and the whole nation of Israel. What are we supposed to do with that? That is a mess. And on top of all of that, I mean, that's a heavy story. Here's this guy that we try oftentimes to look up to and he's described in scripture as having a heart after God and this is what he does? What are we supposed to do with that? And as if all of that's not enough, here's what I want us to hear and understand this morning. It's heavy, but it gets even heavier. I've called David scum. I've called him a rascal. I could just easily say, you and I are scum, and you or I are rascals as well. Because here's the reality. You could just as easily substitute our names in for David's. The very seeds that were in David that eventually led him to this place of committing these awful acts are the same seeds that are in you and me. Now, we don't like to think about that. That doesn't sound very good. We're good at demonizing other people, but Lord, there's no way I could do these things. There is no way that I could do what David did. Really? Are we so sure about that? David did not wake up on this particular day and say, hey, I think I will go and I will sleep with one of my friend's wives and then I'll have him killed if he doesn't cooperate with what I want him to do. He didn't wake up one day saying, that's what I want to do. He woke up and in a restless nature with seeds of who knows what, uncertainty, self-pity, self-despair, was led to a dangerous place upon which then he acted. And this is what we find over and over and over in Scripture. Scripture's not filled with good moral examples. The most famous people in Scripture have significant flaws, significant ways they are imperfect. The founder of the faith, Abraham, is described as a liar repeatedly. Jacob was a liar and a schemer. Moses was disobedient enough. God said, I'm not even going to let you enter into the promised land that I'm giving to everyone else because you didn't do what I wanted you to do sometimes. Peter publicly denounced Jesus multiple times, and he's lifted up as an icon of our faith. These are the best the Bible has to offer. And it's not, they're not in there because they're good, perfect, moral people. They are absolutely imperfect, just like you and I. And the same seeds that are in them as humans are in the same seeds that are in us as humans. Let me give you an example. This could be many of us, but I'll just draw it out this way. Imagine that there's a CEO. I mean, so under the right circumstances, if you give any of us enough time, things will grow upon which we will then act and do things we never intended to do. So say, for example, you're a CEO, 
and you, you're a good person. You genuinely care about your employees. You genuinely care about the organization. You genuinely want to see good things happen to impact society in a positive way. But you are working 80 hours a week, 100 hours a week, 120 hours a week, and you are busting to try to work and help everyone else out. And you're busting all the time, and you're exhausted, and your family has to pay a high price, and you're happy to do it. But over time, you're sort of like, why don't people understand how much I'm giving? And I'm tired, and I need a break, because I'm doing this day after day and week after week. And there start to be some seeds in there of, man, why isn't anyone paying attention to me? Why isn't anyone recognizing how hard I'm working? Why isn't anyone coming along and saying, great job? In fact, not only is nobody doing that, every time I make a decision and I'm doing it for the best of my ability for the organization and to help our employees out, why is it half the employees take it as great news and the other half gripe and complain about another decision that I've made? So now not only am I working hard, but I'm always being critiqued and I'm always being looked on negatively. It's so unfair. And those seeds begin to grow until finally opportunity presents itself that lets the temptation begin to be acted out. You know, if I just took a little more here and skimmed off the top, nobody would notice, and I deserve it because I am working so hard. Nobody sees how hard I'm working. Nobody can relate to me. Here's this coworker. She gets me. And man, it's so nice to have somebody actually get me fully. And I want to be with that person in every way. Is that so wrong? Is that so bad? Or I can't handle all this pressure all the time. I just need a little escape. Drugs here, pornography there, just to let me tune out. Is that really so bad? Because I'm just looking for a break. Like, look, look at all the good things that I'm doing. I just, I just need a break. And do you see how it begins to grow? The seeds grow so that when opportunity presents itself, we weren't planning it, but in our restlessness and in our self-focus, we do things we swore we would never do. And then when something happens and it's discovered what we've done, the first instinct for all of it, let's just cover it up. Why? Because if the organization discovers what I've just done, I will hurt the organization. I can't let them know. So let's just hide it. If it becomes known what I've done, what will the public think? So let's hide it. We are capable of the exact same things of David. And you don't have to be a CEO. You're the employee who works so hard and they don't pay you enough. So when you get a chance to get a little extra, you better believe I'm going to do that. It's the husband and wife that we just want a break. And so we do things that we wouldn't otherwise do because we're just tired of dealing with the realities of life day in and day out. It's the friend who they're really your friend, but they're just somehow getting ahead a little bit more. And man, I'm jealous of you. And friendship turns to jealousy that causes me to want to hurt you, not help you. All of us have these seeds within us. Now, I share that with you this morning. That's heavy. And it is heavy. But I've spent that much time with you this morning to help us understand this, and this is what I want us to get this morning. It's not about our flawed and broken nature. It is about the perfect grace and goodness of God. The Bible is filled with very flawed characters who demonstrate in powerful ways God's grace and God's mercy. So this morning, we read through the end of chapter 11 with David, and where this ended up is David has murdered, he's lied, He's committed adultery. He's coveted. And now Bathsheba is with him. 
if you were to continue in the story, and here's what I want to, one thing I want to ask you to do this week, would you please, as a homework assignment of sorts, read chapter 12 of 2 Samuel for the rest of David's story? Because here's what you would discover. God doesn't end there with David just living forever with Bathsheba and this child. God sends a gentleman named Nathan to come and confront David and to come to David and do one of these. Nathan comes and he communicates with David in such a way as to hold the mirror up and have David look in that mirror and say, David, what you've done is not good. David, what you've done breaks God's heart. David, what you've done is not pleasing to God. And Nathan comes and he has the courage to hold this mirror up to David. And at that point, David has a choice. David can justify. David can rationalize. David can get defensive. David could say, get Nathan out of here, soldiers, and I'll never want to see him again. Or David can own it. And David, in his brokenness, in his imperfection, chooses to own it. And therefore, it's not the end of the story. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13 says it this way. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. Catch this. You're not going to die. In other words, sin is not the end. Death will not reign. And if you were to read the rest of David's story, we would discover there are significant, awful consequences to David's sin. There are. But it's not the end. It doesn't continue to define David. David doesn't just continue to live in that sinful, dark, broken place. Sin reaches a conclusion as God enters in. And when we read David's story and we realize his response and David says, that's it, I, I have God begins to new, renew and bring forth new life where brokenness occurred. And what's really powerful in this story, David in the long run ends up being part of the ancestry and lineage of Jesus Christ himself. So imperfect David is part of the lineage of perfect Jesus. This God that we serve has this amazing capability to take the most broken, the most imperfect situations and bring something good, even something holy out of the brokenness. That is what David reminds us of here this morning. It's not David's perfection. It's God's perfection and God's goodness and God's grace. And so what we're reminded of here this morning, and one of the things I want us to grab, is no matter what we're going through, no matter what sin we might have identifying us right now, even if there's a sin that we're already in, or maybe it's a sin we committed a long time ago, and yet we feel like that continues to define us, what David reminds us of this morning is that in our imperfection, thanks to the goodness and grace of the perfect God that we serve, we can be set free from that sin, no longer defined by it, and live into a sense of freedom we've never had before because of Jesus Christ. Because the God that we serve is perfect even when we are not. This is not a flashy message. It's not an entertaining message. It is a deep message. And for those who choose to hear it and live into it and respond like David, it is life-altering for ourselves and all of those that we have a chance to interact with. It is an opportunity literally to enter into new life and no longer have the chains and the weight that would weigh us down from our own brokenness. And I pray that we hear that as we examine David's story here this morning. If we're not sure how to enter into this new life, David even gives us some examples here this morning. David shows us it's important that all of us learn to get real. 
We are very often not good at being real with each other. We take our sins and our brokenness and our imperfections and we do everything we can to hide them. We don't want to share them with anyone else. But when Nathan confronts David, they get real. In CR, we say this, we are as sick as our secrets. And so the more secrets we hold on to, the more unhealth we tend to experience. A gentleman named John Owen from the 17th century, a British theologian, he said it this way, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. I find that direct approach to be very helpful. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you because that's exactly what happens. One of the gifts that the church has to offer to each other is the gift to be real. And increasingly in a society where we define ourselves under labels, that gift to be real is a gift we can offer to each other so that we really can be set free. It's one of the reasons we encourage people, get into a life group. Life groups are wonderful, not just to learn new material and to be with other people, but in our brokenness, we challenge one another, we love one another, we support one another, we hold each other up, we speak truth when we need to, we cry together, we laugh together. That is a gift the church can give, and in that, we can be real, and as we learn to be real, we can move out of or through our imperfection into God's perfect grace. So I invite us this morning to have the courage to be real about the sin, the darkness that's in our life right now that we just continue to hold on to out of fear of what others may think. Secondly, if we can be a Nathan and find a Nathan, who in our life right now do we know is struggling or hurting? Will you care enough about that person to approach them and say, I love you enough that I want to talk about this with you because I see it hurting you and I see it hurting others? I'm going to lift the mirror up because I care about you. And I want you to see what this imperfection is doing to yourself and to others. And at the same time, will you seek out a Nathan that you would go to and say, I need to talk to you about what's really going on. Here's my stuff. You, will you walk through it with me? I'm not speaking down on Facebook and electronics, but there is a power that comes meeting face-to-face, up close and personal, where you can look in their eye and they can look in yours. And the tears are rolling and you share in those moments that just cannot happen electronically. Be real. Be a Nathan. Find a Nathan. And when we do those things, we then will find ourselves in a place to genuinely give thanks that God that we serve is perfect. We're not, but God is. Praise God. (laughs) We're bound. We weigh ourselves down. We hurt ourselves in our sinful, broken choices, but God is perfect, and God will free us. I've spent a lot of time this morning trying to help us understand that If we think sin's not a big deal, then we'll think God's grace is not a big deal. But here's the reality this morning. The more we realize the gravity of sin, the more thankful we will be for the grace of God. The more we realize sin and brokenness is a really big deal, the more we will say, Lord, thank you in spite of my brokenness and all the things I've done to push you away. Thank you that you choose to redeem me in your perfect, holy, wonderful grace. Thank you. I've never encountered anything like that before. 
Many of us know John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The next verse is just as great and reminds us of this truth we're talking about this morning when it says this, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This God that we serve is about conviction and conversion, not condemnation. And I invite us this morning to live into that reality. God in God's grace sent David, the prophet Nathan, to help him in his imperfection. God in God's grace sends you and I, Jesus Christ, so that we might also move through our imperfection. And in the great irony of it all, David sinned and was able to continue living you and I sin and we get to continue living, Jesus Christ never sinned and he did not get to continue living. He died on the cross for our sin so that we can live. And when that reality sinks into our hearts, then life is different and we are set free and there is joy and abundance in the grace of Christ as defined and found in and through Jesus Christ. We celebrate David this morning, not because he's perfect, he's far from it, he's imperfect, but David in his response, Lord, I'm sorry I have sinned, points us to the holy, perfect one. So this morning, may we do the same. May we be willing to be real, and as imperfect as we are, receive the abundant, holy, perfect grace that God, even in these moments, pours out to us.